I just knew instinctively that it was going to be the most devastating earthquake we had seen in decades. Hello and welcome back to Empyrocast. I am Ben and with me are my hosts, Sonny and Erica. Our podcast aims to provide an overview of subjects offered in the Masters of International Relations at the University of Melbourne. We hope this will give current and future students a student perspective of the different subjects offered as part of the MIR. But first, Erica will be taking us out of Melbourne to Japan to discuss the recent resignation of Japan's Prime Minister, Abe Shinzo. So let's get started, and I'll hand it over to Erica, who will be in conversation with Sonny to break down this week's global rundown on Prime Minister Abe and his legacy. So, last month, on the 28th of August 2020, we had some surprising news from Japan. Abe Shinzo, the longest-serving prime minister in Japanese history, resigned due to health reasons. He was a prime minister for seven years and eight months from 2012 onwards. This came as a bit of a surprise to many outside Japan. What was the response like in Japan? I must say many people were surprised as well. We thought that he'd run at least until Tokyo Olympics is done. He had so many things lined up in his last year in office, including a Xi Jinping official visit to Japan, Tokyo Olympics, and maybe the first attempt to ever change the constitution. But the COVID-19 pandemic completely changed his schedule of a gracious last year of legacy making. But his illness was something that most Japanese knew about. He served as PM once before in 2007, but quit one year after without really doing anything, citing his poor medical condition as the reason to step down. This was the beginning of a long political turmoil in Japan, where we had 1pm a year and the LDP, which has basically dominated politics since 1955, eventually lost power. The now dissolved DPJ, the Democratic Party of Japan, a left-wing party, took over and was supposed to adjust the one-party dominant democracy of Japan. However, they mishandled the Fukushima power plant disaster and lost the 2012 election, which gave an opportunity for Abe and the LDP to re-emerge again. Why do you think Abe managed to stay in power for so long? Touching on Ben's discussion on Asian values last week, do you think that Abe's long reign had something to do with Asian or more specifically Japanese values? I think there are a number of factors that lead to his long and stable leadership that is not related to Japanese values, but more in relation to real life events and political trends in Japan. First, you need to consider what Japan was like in 2012. We had just experienced the most devastating earthquake and tsunami in Japanese history. I remember very, very clearly to this day, on the 11th of March 2011, when the earthquake happened, I was in Osaka, 800 kilometers from the center of the earthquake, but it shook for more than 10 minutes. Normal ones aren't that long. I was in front of the TV, and all channels quickly changed to the reports on the earthquake. And when I knew that the centre was nowhere near Osaka, I just knew instinctively that it was going to be the most devastating earthquake we had seen in decades. I just sat there, hopelessly, in front of the TV as it showed live footage of cities being completely destroyed by the tsunami. It was clear that Japan needed strong politics to guide people out of the loss and despair that was felt in 2011. 
Also, before Abe, we had 1pm a year, and even though the 2009-2012 DPJ period is a positive evidence that a changing government is possible in Japan, the electorate had enough of destabilized and indecisive politics. Abe became famous after the earthquake, as he avidly went and volunteered in seriously affected areas in northern Japan. While the DPJ was accused of covering up the Fukushima power plant disaster in the government, Abe was on the ground, helping out those in desperate need of help. He also managed to stabilise his domestic support by pacifying the Liberal Democratic Party, which had been marked by internal rivalries between factions. So he managed to unite the LDP by appointing key positions to members from each faction, which gave him strong support from the party. This led to his consecutive victories and elections. The stable support from all the factions within the LDP was a key factor in his long term in office. Hmm, interesting. What would you say was Abe's legacy and what did his seven years mean for Japan and the world? I think the fact that he stayed in power for so long is in fact a legacy in itself. Most of what he's famous for, for example, strengthening this SDF and introducing more top-down politics, actually were political trends that existed before him. The deterioration of diplomatic relations between Japan and China and also Japan and South Korea were already rising prior to 2012, based on the disputed territories with both countries. China's GDP and military spending were already twice as large as that of Japan at the beginning of Abe's term. So in Japan, he's probably most famous for the aggressive economic strategy named Abenomics. But today I would like to focus on two things. His security policies and how his long term as Japan's PM changed the nature of domestic politics. I think that his seven years in office, seven years and eight months in office, normalized some political trends and has established a base for future Japanese governments. So in terms of security, policies. The most notable shift was his clear ambition to revise the constitution. He attempted to change the wording of the articles, but in the end only managed to change the interpretation of an article to legitimize collective self-defense. The constitution in Japan has not been changed even once for 75 years. Article 9 is particularly important as it states that Japan will forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and never maintain land, sea and air forces as well as other war potential. So a very strict and literal interpretation of this article allows the SDF to be considered illegal. And the academia is actually quite split on this. Abe's ambition was to change the constitution to fully accept the self-defense force, especially considering the SDF's extraordinary role in disaster recovery in 2011. Advocates thought that it was time the constitution reflected the reality. He did manage to broaden the scope of Japan's pacifist constitution, which prohibited the country from engaging in most forms of combat. In 2015, he changed the interpretation of self-defense to include collective self-defense. This collective self-defense will be revoked if Japan is under direct threat, so-called the survival scenario, which is the only case when the use of military force can be justified. 
His advocacy of constitutional revision reflects a broader trend in Japan, considering heightened tensions with it in its neighboring regions. Something I want to highlight here is that constitutional revision is something that has always been discussed in the LDP, and not simply as Abe's initiative. His long term in office managed to change the nature of this topic to make it more discussable. Previously, it was pretty much a taboo to even talk about this. Most people in Japan considered the constitution, especially Article 9, to be a vital part of Japan's peaceful development after World War II and the pacifism that it reiterates as Japan's most important characteristic as a country. A poll conducted by a major newspaper in June 2020 says that nearly 70% of the respondents answered that they are not in favour of any change in the constitution. Also, the threshold to change is extremely high, so I don't think it will happen anytime soon. I wouldn't say that the security policies under Abe are a reflection of a substantial change or a dramatic break from the past. However, he has made some shifts that reflect the re- increasing tensions in Japan's neighboring region. So, the second major point I would like to cover today is how he changed the nature of decision making at the national government. One of the priorities of the previous left wing government before Abe was to change the nature of decision making to a more politician led, top down one from the technocratic, bureaucrat led model. When Abe came back to power in 2012, he accelerated this trend by going further by gathering decision making power to the prime minister's office. This is called the new Kante Shudo. Model, which changed the power balance of the central ministries. The bureaucrats in the prime minister's office, the Kante Kanjo, who previously mainly worked under the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, would pledge an allegiance in a way to Abe to, in order to, to deliver his key initiatives, often ordering the other ministries to follow. Abe centralized power by putting the prime minister's office also at the center of bureaucracy career decisions. The result was that what came to be known in Japan as sontaku politics, a bureaucratic apparatus anticipating the political will of the prime minister in hope of being granted high positions. His seven years and eight months in office normalized this kind of top down decision making process, turning Japan's traditional decentralized and bottom up politics on its head. So Abe has resigned as PM, but he hasn't withdrawn from politics just yet. He still holds his parliamentary seat in the lower house and has stated that he has no intentions to give up that seat. The new PM, who is called Suga, who was actually Abe's right hand man, he has emphasized a continuation from the Abe administration, which means that maybe the Abe era is not over just yet. So, for people who are interested in how the Japanese political system has shifted over time, the Rosenbluth and these Japan Transformed. Is a really good book to start on, and it will give you some background knowledge in understanding Abe's politics within a longer trend of politics in Japan. Thanks, Erica, for providing your insights on Prime Minister Abe and his legacy. And now, in the next segment, Ben will join me to help break down the international history subject in the Master of International Relations. 
Great. So in this segment, Ben and I will have a conversation on the international history subject in the MIR. Before I begin, I want to say that everything we discuss regarding international history is based on our personal experiences in this subject. If there is anything you are unsure of or need official confirmation for, please consult with the relevant subject coordinator. So Ben, when I did international history in 2017, it was a core subject required in the Master of International Relations. Was this still the case when you did this subject more recently? And were there any other additional requirements? Well, so when I did this subject in 2018, I was in my second semester. And at that point in time, it was still a core subject. And I believe it is still a core subject now. Great. So now let's talk a bit about what the subject actually entails. So in a nutshell, when I did international history, the subject covered world events and issues, issues that shaped international relations since 1648, but with a particular emphasis on the period after 1945. And so the subject's main focus was to help students understand the historical roots of contemporary global issues. So some events and developments the subject focused on was the Cold War, wars in the Middle East, and the rise of the Third World, along with issues such as changing ideas about human rights and the growth of non-governmental organisations. So that was sort of the content of the subject. But for me, on a personal level, when I took the subject in semester two, 2017, it was the first subject I did in my MIR, and it was taught by Dr. Barbara Keyes. She was an excellent lecturer. She had a PhD from Harvard, and she definitely addressed the different weekly topics in a very balanced and nuanced way. She was from the United States, so she brought in an American perspective into all the weekly topics as well. She was also my tutor for the subject, and her teaching style definitely made me enjoy the subject a lot. Unfortunately, I don't think she works at the university anymore. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, when I did the subject, Barbara came in and did um, a lecture as a guest lecturer. Uh, she also took over a few of our tutes. Um, the, the person who was lecturing the subject when I was there was a man called Tom. He was really good. He was quite a young guy. So he had a different perspective to Barbara. Um, and he was Australian, but he'd spent time in Europe doing a lot of his studies and his PhD, etc. So he had a completely different perspective on places like Germany to Barbara, for example, and the US um, compared to her more sort of personal perspective on the US and then how the US acts over in other countries such as Vietnam, for example. So uh, the way I saw the subject was quite interesting because I had done subjects on Vietnam before. I had done subjects on individual US presidents and I'd done subjects on US foreign policy. But this subject was different because you looked at each case sort of in a more personal perspective, not only from the states that were involved, but also in the individuals that were involved. And the lectures reflected that as well. So Barbara did her perspective on Vietnam. Um, and I'd done a subject in undergrad with Barbara and it was quite good. Uh, and it, and the, this subject was almost a mirror of that subject, but just taught in a more complex way. Uh, and I found that when doing the subjects, or the, the topics on Vietnam and the topics on places like the Suez Canal, which I'd never done before, these areas were omitted in undergrad unless you did a Middle Eastern subject and they were quite hard to find. So it was good from that point of view to explore key issues at the time that maybe you hadn't gone through in other subjects at undergrad. 
Hmm, interesting. So let's move on to the assessments now. When I did the subject, there were three key assessments. So we had two essays that were worth around 2,250 words. We had a couple of in-class quizzes across the semester. I think there were three from memory and also a group simulation. So this involved picking a historical issue and taking on the role of relevant world leaders in discussions with the opposing side. So from memory, I did the Oslo Accords and I took on the role of Yasser Arafat in the class simulation. Was this similar when you did the subject and how did you find the assessments? The structure remained the same for much of it. There was still three quizzes. They were still done across the semester and I believe weeks three, six, and then one at week 10. They were fairly standard. You would just get issues that you've learned from, some of the questions would be from the readings, some of the questions would be from the lectures they were fairly easy to get decent marks on if you just prepared yourself for them. The essays are the same, so two essays. However, I believe that one of them is now referred to as a policy brief, which is then related to the simulation you did in class. However, when I did it in 2019, it was two essays, one fold on simulation in the class. The assessments, I found, again, the quizzes, very straightforward. The essays I got a lot out of because you could pick, you could use your question and change it to make it quite specific to an interest that you wanted. You can work with the lecturers that are quite flexible in the way they approach the assessments and they allow you to change your question to make it something more personal to you. Even if that's going off a topic, as long as it roughly relates to the topic, they'll still take it. I also found the simulation very good. At the time when I did it quite rushed, just because our lecturer went away and we had Barbara for the lesson and she did change my role um, from the, the guy who was uh, organizing the discussions to the president of the United States and I did mine on Vietnam. So it was quite kind of a shock to do all of a sudden on the day, but they, the way they run the subject is they just follow you around and they listen to what you're speaking about and they assess you and, and the knowledge that you're passing on and your actions and how accurate you can be to that character. So it's well rewarding in finding out, for example, how the, F, uh, the CIA would work versus the president and how they would work then with the army, how, they, how the generals would think versus, for example, your public relations staff. It's immersive. Yeah, so I guess building on what you said, I'd just like to add a couple of things. I guess with the COVID online learning situation, with the quizzes, you would no longer have to memorise dates or anything along those lines that I sort of used to worry about. And I know the quizzes are not worth a lot of marks, but it's good to prepare for them and get as many marks as you can. So you have some leeway with your major essays. And that would be one of my tips for this subject. Also with the essays, I would say pick a topic that you're really passionate about from the options they give because then you'll enjoy the writing process more. I would also highly recommend you go talk to a lecturer during consultation. I went and saw Barbara for both my essays to make sure you're on the right track. And this was like a few weeks before the essays were due. I did this not just in this subject, but across all my subjects in the MIR. And I find that your lecturer's feedback on your, lecturer's feedback on your essay plan and your draft really helps improve your essay at least it did with me and um, because it gave me a guide of what the lecturer who's going to be marking your essay is really looking for and what areas you need to focus on or improve in your draft or your plan although they can't give you too much feedback they can sort of see if you're on the right track or not also I think it's best in this subject to use as many primary historical resources as you can it gives your essay much more credibility and it shows to the lecturer that you've done proper historical research and this subject is a history subject in the MIR. So I think that's a really important tip to keep in mind when you're writing your essays for this subject. So just to end this subject review segment, Ben, how would you say this subject fits into the broader MIR at the University of Melbourne? 
So, yeah, I think it's an important point you made. This subject is very history-based. It may be an international relations subject, but it, it is history-based and the history of the politics that went on in that time. It's also important, I guess, as a tip for this subject to bear in mind that it is quite American-focused, i.e. you're looking at sort of America in episodes of the world almost at points in time. Some of them like, for example, Suez Canal is, is, is separate from that, but most of them do involve a U.S. perspective on how an event happened, unless you get sort of a guest speaker in. So, for example, I really found the week on Russia crucial to my enjoyment of the subject because the lady that came in, Julie, she spoke about Russia's perspective on the Cold War and how they thought about American actions, American perspectives, and why they did things the way they did. And I thought that was good because until that point, we'd sort of seen the US perspective in Vietnam, or we'd seen US perspectives along with British perspectives in the Suez Canal crisis. And I liked the fact that it was different. I think also, again, like Sonny said, with the topics, it's very good to get something you're interested in. I did a lot of subjects that undergrad um, regarding Americans' impact on the world after the Second World War, but none of them really went into the Cold War, and I was really interested in writing essays on the Cold War. I actually did both my essays, one on the start of the Cold War and the second essay on Vietnam, but I would have done the second essay on the end of the Cold War if I had a chance because I found that area just really, really interesting. It also introduced me to Jewish subject, Russia and the World, which was very good if you're interested in Russian perspectives, which I then took the following semester. So I really had to thank this subject for that. So for me, I would say this subject really opened my eyes to how most major world issues um, have deep historical roots and that it's not useful to analyse or to try to understand contemporary world issues without understanding their proper historical context. And yeah, overall, I would just say it's a great subject within the MIR degree at the University of Melbourne. Before we sign off, I'd like to quickly mention upcoming Empire events. On the 29th of September from 7pm, we have an alumni event where we invite graduates from the MIR course to discuss career opportunities and challenges they faced. The annual general meeting for Empire is scheduled to be held on the 7th of October. For those of you who are interested in running, make sure you contact a member of the current Empire committee. As always, we have weekly Zoom catch-ups on Wednesday evenings from 8pm, so make sure you join us there as well. Other than that, you can email us, find us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. On Facebook, you can find us on the Empire page, and also the closed Facebook group called Empire Students. For more details, academic information, and discussions from the Empire cohort at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of EmpiroCast. Anarchy is what students make of it. Future and past episodes of EmpiroCast can be found on our website at www.empiro.org. To get in touch with the Empire committee, please email admin at empiro.org. Empire is proudly affiliated and supported by the Graduate Student Association at the University of Melbourne. EmpiroCast is an independent production and the views expressed are the views of the host and the featured students. They do not in any way represent the views of the University of Melbourne, Empiro, or the Graduate Student Association. Special thanks to our editor Wing for editing this episode for us. So that's it for episode three. The host was Sonny, myself Ben, and Erica. And we hope to see you soon in our next episode. So thanks for listening. Stay safe. Bye for now. <laughs>